Hey y'all, welcome to the third episode of the Architect's Purpose Podcast. I think y'all are going to enjoy this discussion quite a bit. It is all about Chicago in 1893. The White City. The book is the devil in the White City, but we are really more focusing on the architecture versus the serial killer that's a another podcast but this episode is all about the head honcho the man who gets it done daniel burnham this guy pulls off a herculean effort and essentially an entire city is built over 660 acres in an entire world's Pair from ground up. It's basically built on a marsh. This guy pulled it off, and this discussion really leads into the nature of what it means to be an architectural firm, as well as the important dynamics between the different roles in a firm itself. But the discussion also leads to the emerging and changing technologies of the time, as well as calling other key characters like Olmsted and Prude and and others. So, without further ado, enjoy. Today is all about. Really, a turning point in the technology of society, and um, it is all about the eighteen ninety-three World's Fair in in Chicago, and it was really made possible by obviously a lot of people, but notably Daniel Burnham. And uh, a a few photo pull others of Olmsted, Brute, and um, I'm blanking on a fourth one. But one thing that really stuck out to me was the um scale of it of um and pretty t- overall size of the. I mean, it's over 600 acres and over 27 million people went through it. So that is quite the hefty undertaking. And plus the site they chose, they basically had to do a full Dubai and build it all up because they're really wasn't quite much there. So what were a few of the questions that you posed to the class? So one of the questions, first questions I asked them was who the, uh, who was the famous landscape architect that helped craft the World's Fair? And most of them got it right, thankfully. So. <laughs> and then I asked them, well, what else was he known for? And many of them got that right too. Of course, you know Central Park, um, 
but I also asked him, well, what did he do in Massachusetts? Um, and, uh, you know, he crafted uh, what was known as the, um, the, Emerald, um, the Emerald Necklace, which was a series of parks um, in, in Massachusetts that, you know, created an ambiance, not to the scale of Central Park, of course, but, you know, certainly it was a notable project for him at the time. Um, I also asked him questions like, well, what, what was the, um, so Olmsted really wanted, you know, something to happen out on the lakes. What was, what was the most important thing about that? And it was the, um, of course, the creation of these electric boats to, you know, float back and forth across the lake. And it took him a really long time to, to actually find somebody who would build those, um, but so his idea was, I don't want to plant flowers. I don't want to, um, you know, create a garden. I want to create an, an entire environment. And, and I think that without Olmsted, and this is one of the things that we forget about architects, without Olmsted, the Chicago Sphere would have been a disaster. Um, oh. His vision for the lake, um, the wooded island, um, even though they allowed the Japanese to build um, a, a temple there that was, um, you know, an affront to him originally, but he ended up accepting it. Uh, but, I, you know, his vision of crafting an entire environment that wasn't about planting flowers uh, or even specific trees, it was really creating uh, an experience. Mm. And, you know, we talk about that a lot today, um, you know, the experiential architecture, uh, and you see that uh, in retail, you see that, um, you know, certainly in sports facilities, um, even in the one that was uh, recently completed in Southern California, the SoFi, um, you know, uh, arena, it, it's all about the experience of attending an event like that and, and, and the spaces that you go through and uh, the environment that's created for that. So we talked a lot about about those kinds of things. And those are some of the original questions that I asked. Oh yeah, and it's really quite an amazing achievement that they were able to pull off. I find it really perfect that you honed in on Olmsted and that truly without him and I would I would argue as much as it was his talent and his design, but also through the entire process, I felt he was the one who was most like Broart to that vision where Burnham, as things got crunching, he's like, man, let's just, we need something up. Like, it doesn't really matter what it is. It can't be unfinished. And it's also quite, Interesting how this story is kind of the classic story of an architect in that he was was late to finish his project, but it turned out pretty good. So, you know, like, because it it, it was really uh, interesting to learn how, what, half of it, most of it wasn't even open or quite done for the first, what, month or two of it open. And it still drew people, 
what it took up until the very ever first Paris wheel. And that to me also, never reading the actual uh, stats on it, as in, so the Texas Paris wheel at the Texas State Fair is pretty damn big. It's like 216 feet tall. The first one was 246 feet tall and had upwards of 36 cars and would hold at one time 2,000 people. So, you know, I asked them the question of, um, you know, have you ever been on the, uh, to the Texas State Fair? Obviously, it's here in Dallas. Um, mm-hmm. And how many people can fit in one of those cars? And I think it's probably eight people. And uh, we talked about, you know, a Pullman car. You know, does anybody does anybody know what a Pullman car is? And, you know, people are like, ah, I don't know what that is. And I said, it's a fucking railroad car. I mean, that is a Pullman car. And so what, what Ferris designed was that each, each car that went up on the Ferris wheel was a literal train car, um, you know, that could hold up to 100 people in it at, at any one time. And... And that's pretty phenomenal. I mean, just the engineering feat alone at the turn of the 19th century is pretty phenomenal. Exactly. Because, and, and, and he had a challenge. So, he, you know, he challenged the Society of Engineers saying, you know, come on, come on, guys. I mean, we are, we're Americans. We can, we can do this. We can build something, you know, more impressive than the Eiffel Tower. And all of the um, uh, offerings, you know, there were, you know, some really ludicrous uh, offerings uh, uh, to try to compete with the Eiffel Tower. Some of them two and three times the height and size of the Eiffel Tower. And Burnham astutely said, she's not going to get built. And then all of a sudden Ferris came through with, you know, his wheel. And it it truly was an ingenious um, artifact. you know, certainly for that time and really for all, I mean, can you imagine building that today? Um, I mean, if you built it today, it would still be an engineering feat. And that was 150 years ago. I mean, my God, that's amazing. So one of the things that we um, moved quickly to, so, you know, Burnham and Root, we talked a lot about the fact, we talked a lot about the the arrangement of an architectural practice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that there are four basic classifications within an architectural practice. And just to belabor the obvious for a moment, obviously design is mm-hmm. a key component. Project management is a key component. Business development is a key component. And then the technical prowess to execute the design is another component. And those are really the four central elements for any architectural practice. So Burnham and Root, you know, they shared some of that because Burnham actually had a little bit of panache himself. And so he was able to, you know, sell a client and sign a a deal, you know, even though he wasn't necessarily thought of ever as the lead design person. Um, But, and, and so, um, which is a little bit atypical. The designer at Root 
was really the technical in, innovator, right? So he created the platform, um, basically the floating slab in Chicago for all of the horrible soils that they have in Chicago. You know, mm -hmm. He created a, a, uh, a way in which they could build high rises uh, by building you know, a really deep, thick concrete slab uh, that basically floated on the really bad soils uh, in Chicago to raise uh, buildings to amazing heights. And, mm -hmm. and he was the first one to do that. So typically you don't necessarily find a designer and a technical person in the, within the, the same individual. But what Burnham brought was the business development side and the project management side, you know, the practical. And so they created in Burnham and Root the ideal practice because they had all four of those areas easily covered. Mm -hmm. And so we talked a lot about that, about, you know, in today's practice, it usually needs at least four different individuals who are focusing on the, those elements because the talent for, you know, one, one specific area um, rarely lies in beyond that, with that one particular focus. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, as a design director, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty creative guy. I feel like I am a really good technical architect, but I also rely on other people to be much more down in the weeds than I am in order to execute the designs. And so, you know, again, that was that, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that in our class about the, the, the arrangement of an architectural practice. Um, in the same way that, you know, Sullivan and Adler um, uh, also had, you know, those skill sets and the fact that when Root died, Burnham was still able to move forward with his practice. And Sullivan and Adler, when Adler left, Sullivan was not able to maintain his practice. And so what were the fallacies there? So we spent, a, you know, a bit of time talking about that. It seems... They are all four components that do work in tandem. But if you don't have the ends of it, as in the client acquisition side and the completion side in the project management, then it doesn't matter how great the work is. It can't be built because you don't have those things. And it's partly why we see a lot of uh, average stuff out there because people can schmooze and can run a construction project but when we're speaking about design or something that is way more subjective and beyond concrete numbers and a bottom line it is quite crucial to have that el that element as long as you have the other two because so, successful practice in my opinion has to run efficiently on all four of those cylinders. And if it doesn't, then you're gonna have a failure in one part. I mean, you can have great design, but if you don't have the technical capability, your, your roofs leak, um, you get sued, you go out of business. Um, if you don't have the ability to go out and, and seek work and have a, a business development acumen and you know be charming and all of those kinds of things, then you're not going to bring in, in even new work. Um, and, you know, again, I think that 
you know, Sullivan was so irascible as an individual that, um, you know, he turned away any potential client that would, would actually come to him, even though he was a brilliant designer, an incredible innovator. I mean, he built one of our first skyscrapers ever um, in the city of Chicago, but yet he wasn't able to maintain a practice. And so he was coming to Burnham later in life, you know, selling artwork to him in order to just, you know, keep food on the table. I mean, that's, you know, that's a horrible way for an architect to go. So we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, and I said, well, what is the, what's the name of this course? It's the Architect and Contemporary Society. And, you know, we're trying to analyze, you know, within the realm of what happened with the Devil in the White City, what happened to those practices then and how does it apply to the practices of today? And is there any, re you know, relevance to that? And of course there is. Um, and, and so we had some really nice discussion about that. Yeah. And it seems also that and how we talked last time of how Brunelleschi was that first Really, emergence of an architect, Burnham, and thought him specifically, but this era and especially this event really pushed it more and so put a it along with all of the uh, true technological change and how um, it was quite interesting how the way they He's signed it, then influenced how we built our cities, obviously, in a very American bastardized way, you know. So, it, like, we didn't quite get the white city everywhere. Um, one thing that bothered me kind of the first time learning about the expo and how they designed it. I was all confused or, um, I mean, I understand partly why to design it in a theoclassical nature, but it's, it seems as I've learned more, there was much more of a blend of exposing the new steel structure versus just hiding at all. But I would, I mean, I understand why they gave people what they kind of know and could potentially expect or have have at least heard of. But with the World's Fair being a show of new technology, they, sh they showed a, a Greek city, you know, all in all. Well, you know, at the time... You know, Corbusier and Gropius and, and others had not even arrived on the scene yet. So the the notion of so the the most advanced architecture of theory at the at the moment was the Beaux Arts theory, you know, mm -hmm. the Ecole de Beaux Arts in Paris. And so, you know, creating an environment through neoclassical forms was it wasn't necessarily an issue of being familiar with that. It was the um, it was the only way people knew how to do architecture at that moment. Okay. Um, and even though 
uh, even Sullivan um, hated neoclassicism, obviously, um, and his uh, his structure, you know, pushed the envelope to reduce ornament and um, and the you know the classical orders of the columns and so on. Um, he he still subjugated himself to um, the agreement of the whole the whole group. Um, you know, one of the questions that we asked was, uh, one of the questions I asked my students was, uh, of course, how did um, Burnham feel about uh, his entry exams to you know Harvard and, and Yale? How did that go? And of course, yeah, didn't, yeah. didn't go very well. Um, nope, he did not get in. And he, you know, he froze. He froze. I mean, he froze on the entrance exams and wasn't admitted to, you know, those institutions. And that had been a chip on the shoulder his entire career. And I, and so, you know, we did this in two two classes. And so the first class we were talking about that. And I said, well, you know, I think Burnham will, you know, find that, you know, he was, uh, you know, certainly. Um, uh, he, you know, he found a way to, um, you know, get over that because, uh, you know, in the end, you know, he, you know, he received, you know, accolades from, you know, these other institutions that we'll talk about later. Um, but at first he was, he felt like when he was reaching out to the New York architects who were, you know, so much more accomplished and, and, and created, you know, all of these amazing structures all over the East Coast, he mm -hmm. found that uh, you know, he felt a little bit intimidated by them, right? Yeah. Um, and he didn't necessarily need to feel intimidated, but because they were well-educated at these higher institutions uh, that he held, held a lot of respect for, I think he, he felt like he was a second-class citizen. And, you know, what I was trying to explain to the students was that it's really the body of work that you produce over the course of your life that demonstrates who you are as an architect. And it doesn't matter whether you go to Harvard or Yale or Columbia or um, uh, Cornell or what, you know, you don't have to go to the Ivies to be able to, you know, produce a body of work that is worth people having respect for, because ultimately, um, you know, Burnham had his day. Um, exactly. And, 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 you know, I feel like he was, um, you know, uh, ultimately he, you know, he, uh, I, I can't find the right word for it, but um, he, um, he received the accolades that he, he wanted his entire life when he received his honorary degrees from both Harvard and Yale. And of course, he went to Harvard instead of Yale to receive his honorary degree. Exactly. Um, and that is quite along the parallel of pro arc as well, in that they weren't quite approved by the common uh, uh, standard pair. For kind of different reasons, but also in reading the book, I found 
or I pretty felt he was a lot more like Keating. In yes. The cut. We, he we was, talked a lot about that. Yeah. Like I couldn't get that sense more of please like me, please approve, please. I mean, a part of me does obviously think he enjoys what he did. I mean, he wouldn't have lived in the shanty, you know, for how, for the years he did, you know, um, without that enjoyment. But that chip on his shoulder was quite emblematic of, Chicago and their need for that approval of others at times, especially obviously New York and to Keating. I it was like I it was burning in my ears. Yeah. So um, yeah, I love the fact that you know some of these books build on on each other, and we'll talk a little bit more about it when we talk about the Odd Couple. You know who's Keating and who's Rourke. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we compare Johnson to um, uh, to Frankwood Wright, but the the issue with Keating was that he was seeking people's approval for their approval's sake. Burnham was never in that position just to seek people's approval for approval's sake. Uh, he wasn't out there to say, um, I, "I'm sorry, do you really like this? Um, you know, I'll design something that you really like," um, and and that was. You know, Keating's approach was to appeal to the masses in a, a way for him to receive um, uh, self-affirmation for what he was trying to do. Burnham wasn't necessarily trying to do that. He was he was really trying to put together a coalition of architects uh, to produce something that eclipsed the Paris World Fair. And, 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 and he wasn't trying to placate to the masses. He wasn't trying to do something to seek other people's approval in the sense that if I design it this way, will you approve it? Will you like it? He wasn't going out and, and asking people's opinions about the work that he was doing in order to, for him to feel better about himself. And that was really what Keating was trying to do. It, he mm. didn't have... Um, an internal compass to produce the kind of work that was important to him. And Burnham did, um, you know, we talk about, um, you know, one of the things that Burnham did in his work was, um, he produced, uh, uh, what, you know, what's, what's known as the, you know, the Burnham window, um, which is a, um, you know, it's a projected volume from the surface of the facade that has a 45, a 90, and a 45. So it's it's a basically a bay window that pushes itself out from the facade, and that is, you know, known as as the Burnham uh, window. Um, and so, and he produced as part of what you know. I saw that uh, in Philadelphia. I saw that in New York. I saw that in Boston. Um, you know. It's a, a way of designing a building differently than, than um, you know, certainly what was done before him. So he produced something that was really unique and still exists even today um, uh, as a, uh, in, an artifact of architectural design. Hmm. He 
was quite transcendent in a lot of different aspects. Um, I actually didn't even discover him until I studied about him in school. But in learning about really all he did, he combined a lot of different aspects of Keating and Proark, but also uh, Philip Johnson and others, you know, of really understanding his own ego enough to bring in other talented people. I think that really set him apart and and not all that fearful to go meet with four of the best living architects that are in New York, not Chicago. And he just gets so much flack, but he's like, hey, do you want this to be the best or do you want this? And I do feel, though, it being built in a neoclassical style, it was heavily placating to the passes. I do understand the argument that we quite don't have the um, the text style to push neoclassical aside, but the methods of which they were building were not classical and were barely even neoclassical because they, especially the ones out of steel, it's not like they're using gigantic load-pairing stones cut cut for columns or, or, or anything, you know? So it's like, it's always bothered me that they did that. But then when you look at the true scale of the buildings, they truly dwarf the, the people. Like, it, it's truly a... Astonishing, both how tall they are, but because they are theoclassical and they are done with pretty rigorous proportions. And as we discussed, I believe in the first episode of, well, if you're gonna build something in a style, let's do it right. And and they absolutely did it right. And and exactly. And and the issue there. So to me, the most impressive thing was that he kept, you know four or five world-class architects on task. And he immediately decided that the designs that originally required, you know, brick and stone, he said, listen, we're never going to get there. We're never going to get these built. And so we're going to have to build them out of plaster. Um, and, you know, which obviously is the creation of the white city. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the only way to get it done. And so, you know, it was Burnham who really had the foresight as a project manager to say, you know, we've got a we've got a deadline to meet. This is what we need to do. And even though all of the architects said we would prefer to for it to be out of brick and stone, he said we're not going to do that. We're going to do it th- this other way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and again, when we talk about the framework of an architectural practice you need somebody to uh, be able to kind of control the schedule and to say, we've got to be realistic about this, guys. I mean, we only have 18 months to do this, and there's yeah. no way we can get there. Um, and so that's, you know, again, one of the things that I appreciate about Burnham was the fact that 
he realistically understood what the issues were, what the schedule was, and, and how to get from here to there. And even though everything wasn't 100% ready at opening day, um, and it was probably only 40% on, what was it, Consecration Day or whatever they called that, um, Dedication Day, um, you know, on opening day, that you know, everything still wasn't in place, but it was, it, it was in place enough for people to be overwhelmed. Um, mm. and, uh, and, and so, you know, you, you really have to appreciate Burnham's sense of schedule, project management, and, uh, and a drive to achieve a goal that was really difficult uh, under those circumstances. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it dark? I mean, I know you can't see me that well. Uh, I can see you um, decently, but soon, yeah, it'll be um, pretty dark. Um, would you be able to move inside or Yeah, not? I can move inside if I need to. All right, cool. Um, uh, it, it'll, it'll cut into my cigar smoking, but... Yeah, well, we are all... Uh, good right now, and um, I should be able to fix it some in post as well. But uh, one thing that was quite impressive was that scale. I mean, nothing like this had been done by the people who had done it, you know, and it was 50% larger than the Paris Expo, which just blew everyone away. Obviously, the Eiffel Tower, and it was quite outstanding that they pulled it off in such scale, but also that sort of sprawl and nature, or um, I mean, it's interesting that in the beginnings and advent of the skyscrapers, they didn't really build anything like they were, but also on the other hand, they only had a short period of time. So you can't exactly um, build a, a an entire city like Manhattan. You know, it it, it takes centuries. Um, yeah, but you have to realize that the people of Paris hated the Eiffel Tower when it was first built. Mm. They, they railed against it and they they thought it was an anathema to the culture and, 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 and class of that entire city. Um, and now it's, you know, it's celebrated as if you go to Paris, you've got to go see the Eiffel Tower, right? Um, and so it's interesting that some things that were a bane to uh, the, the parishioners, uh, the, the, the uh, people of Paris uh, have now become one of their most beloved monuments. Ex uh, exactly. And uh, I kind of wish that they would have kept the city, the white city, more intact. But also, all of the architects explained how that they really bemoaned the idea of 
it's going in to obscure, uh, uh, into obscurity and it really being uh, a shanty town essentially um but it was still quite an outstanding achievement in and how they built over 600 acres in a very short time but also on top of it this was such a technological turning point from Tesla and Edison and all of these different really brand new technologies happening and I mean the place was lit at 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 night and consumed more energy than all of Chicago. I mean, it, it was an absolute feat of technological prowess, and it's like the dichotomy of it looking like an idealized Greece is absolutely mind-blowing, and I'm finding it a lot more fascinating than hating on it. Because Hating on it's no, easy. I mean, I mean, we have alternating current because of Tesla, um, and it, the fact that he proved um, that he could do that and provide all of these lights, uh, which is one of the reason. The other reason why it was called the White City was because of all the, the lights, not only because of the plaster that you could see during the day, but how much it was lit, and, and that you could do it at a city scale. You could light a city at a city scale through alternating current. And I know that Edison was really pissed about that, but... Well, he, I mean... He didn't get came, his, his lamps, you know, approved. So, and it all came down to the cost. I'm forgetting the raw and tumbers, but Westinghouse came in at like a third of the bid. And it was, I mean... You can't not choose that, you know? It's a third, and this is an insane project with government funding and government oversight. It was quite interesting to see that relationship of project manager and the powers that be, because his clients, it is the world, but it's also the government, because they're putting the bill and at a certain point in time they need more funding and then that triggers an audit and then they're asking why to spend so much on nails and it's like there's a lot to build and and it's just an added player to the role of it of an architect and a quite crucial one and that's absolutely right so you know when they brought in that that uh, reclamation committee of three to look over every expenditure that Burnham had. We talked a lot about that. It's like, you know, how, as you, you as an architect, if, if you have somebody coming in and, you know, looking over your shoulder at every expenditure that you have, how would you feel about that? And I'm sure Burnham was not, not pleased that he had to answer to somebody after they, the committee had named him, you know, basically the czar of, uh, the exhibition, but now he had to answer to this this committee of three over, as you said, you know, every nail that was was put into place and every expenditure that they had. Um, I'm sure it really irked him. But 
he he soldiered on. I mean, he he kept moving forward with it, and he didn't let them um, dissuade him from the ultimate goal of of having this accomplished. And ultimately, they let the committee go. You know, that that small committee of three. Um, you know, I compared I compared them in class to. Um, you know, the two grumpy old men on the Muppets uh, who <laughs> were, you know, bitching about this and bitching about that, um, which they were. And ultimately, they saw that it was not necessary because Burnham had it under control. And yeah. that, again, is a, a huge testament to his ability to, um, you know, manage the, uh, the design and the construction uh, part of something that is was you know so overwhelming from a monetary and size uh, point of view, but his management skills enabled them to prevail. He just stuck to it and said, "You know what? You, this is what our ultimate goal is. We're going to keep moving forward on it." And a part of that is continually pestering late and procrastinating designers because <laughs> that is quite a theme throughout the story. I mean, at a certain point, even Olmstead um, is complaining and poor, poor old Olmstead. I mean, he, like he's fallen apart. His teeth hurt. Always had, just always in tight shape. And I found it kind of, funny also that like a month before it opens he takes like a sabbatical to england and like to get inspiration baby but i'm like bro it's a little late like like like, i feel like go back and plant some stuff yourself and the largest crime is i feel he didn't even quite get to do what he really wanted to accomplish because on for one Olmstead, it took n- not months, not years, but decades to achieve the appropriate like picture qualities because all of his parks are not formal, squared off flower pedge and flower beds and hedges. It's way more of that naturalistic landscape akin to England. And you can't achieve a forest overnight and on top of it during all of the construction it was quite terrible how they would just trample all over his lawns and everything they built or it's chicago and they want to open in may and they think they can do all the planting over the winter but it's chicago and there's two feet of ice because these site they picks basically a marsh you know so <laughs> Like he is behind so many eight balls and is able to stick to that original vision and on so many different counts from the quotes, but especially the overall design. Like he was completely unwavering of doing anything tacky and and basically anything also the French do because the French are very formal. They're like they're gardens are homages to men's oppression over nature, you know. Whereas the English gardens, you know, are more naturalistic. Um, I mean, the Italian gardens are the same way. It's mm-hmm. it, The Italian gardens are a little bit of, it's a mix between French and, and English. 
in my opinion. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that again, the outdoor spaces and the in the environment that was created was just as important as the you know the the um, is the you know the central um, you know what, what was it the hall of palaces or the I forget forget that was the court of honor court of honor yeah so the court of honor um, you know was a magnificent space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I encouraged the students to do was that, uh, well, so you read this book. Did you look up any images for what the Court of Honor looked like? And, and you know, a number of them did not. And I said, really? Gosh, I mean, you really need to, as we're reading these things, you really need to um, do a Google search on this stuff because... You know, there's some amazing images out there that I think you're missing out on. And it's it's truly impressive what was built from an artifact, architectural artifact point of view, but also from, again, an, an environmental point of view uh, uh, from Olmsted's position. And, you know, when we talked to, you know, about the issues of today and with, with COVID and social distancing and and the importance of outdoor environments you know that that is becoming you know you know more and more significant and um, I mean I can't tell you how I mean I've, I've lectured on this a number of different places and a number of different times that the spaces in between the buildings and it, mm-hmm. it's almost a, an anathema as an architect to, to say this but the spaces in between the buildings are almost more important than the buildings themselves um, so- and um, but, you know, from a, a Frank Lloyd Wright point of view, the two have to really work in harmony with one another. The spaces in between the buildings need to work in, in harmony with the buildings themselves. And I think they really achieve that in the White City. Exactly. And the overall congruence of the design as well, I mean, it's almost designed with the trigger of oh, of of oh, of um houseman's paris and uh and that all of the corner sites and all of the uh, proportions are to be quite strict but also <clears throat> what was what was White's um, phasing of healthy spaces is what happens inside is all of these really incredible exhibits from exotics around the world to new technologies. But what really made it thrive was an outdoor public space, the ability to gaze up upon itself and truly look uh, and truly look across it as a more naturalist landscape than here's a street and it was quite interesting also that so the typical fair or what have you you can basically enter from 
all sides. That's the point. Draw people in forever, but both Burnham and Olmstead were quite adamant about, no, we should actually only have one, maybe two entrances, but the point of the design is that experiential picture and walking through it, and it just happens differently through a different sequence of spaces, and they were so adamant about people entering through the Court of Honor, so in all of the descriptions or critiques it would explain hey this is the main entrance and um and even Purnum whenever smoozing others because got how much of his time was <coughs> with delegates from other countries all over the, the, the globe you know just to schmooze them <laughs> and let of that alone truly accomplished what they are trying to ach- to achieve. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why the World's Fair has dropped off the, the map. It's sad. Um, we talked a little bit about the Barcelona, you know, the you know Mises Barcelona Pavilion as being a part of the the World's Fair in Barcelona. Um, and that was a, a, you know, a contribution that was, you know, clearly, you know, obviously ahead of its time and, and, uh, this wonderful monument, you know, I've been to a couple of times now and it's, it's just an amazing space an amazing pavilion to experience. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know why the world's fair has fallen out of favor with governments, but, you know, clearly the expenditure to do that and. Uh, you know, certainly had an effect on that. It seems as well as technology evolved and travel became more ubiquitous and especially the transference of communication and as that became a lot more rapid. You didn't have to hold an annual or a a planned event to release these essentially press releases. I mean, the World's Fair is a gigantic press release, you know? Um, and it was qu- quite um, something how both in time if they have this event and then all of the technologies to really back it up to make the exhibitions really as worthwhile as the buildings themselves were um so something i've been thinking about a little recently and it was spawned for sure from reading the the devil in the white city that what's the true virtue of of an exhibition and having these buildings go away and um does it add to the allure and having it end in a very poetic nature or or because i find it a lot more valuable if the building's still here. 
Well, I think so. I mean, if you go to, you know, Barcelona as an example. Uh, <laughs> if you go to Barcelona as an example, they still have um, a number of the um, uh, warehouses and they even have two towers that are, um, you know, mimic images of the um, Campanile and Piazza San Marco, um, mm -hmm. you know, flank kind of the entry to it. Um, you know, I, I think some of those remnants, you know, still remain with us and are still important. Uh, it is a shame that the White City was built on, as su such a temporary thing that it couldn't remain with us for much longer. Um, but, you know, we do have, you know, other examples of it, uh, even in New York, um, where um, if you even think of the, the Men in Black movie, um, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the spherical objects that are um, just outside of, um, you know, the Met Stadium. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had uh, a World's Fair exhibition there in the, uh, you know, early 1920s or 1930s uh, that were, you know, again, suggesting of the techno technological advances of art and architecture at that point. Um, and, and those are, are artifacts and remnants that, that still remain with us. So, you know, we do have some examples of those things um, uh, that we can still refer to, but uh, it, it's a shame that the beauty uh, of the White City is really just captured in photographs and renderings now. Yeah. It's, uh, it seems also that if they knew that the Parisians were going to keep the Eiffel Tower. I think they would have tried to take him more of a long-term uh, solution. Um, and especially if it was done today, I would highly suspect that the idea of reuse would be in mind, you know? And so today, like, what's kind of the equivalent? I would say it's probably what the Olympics, you know, and how a city has to rapidly build up if they don't already have the proper infrastructure. And one thing, um, whenever I was studying abroad in Austria, they had like a few junior and a winter Olympics, um, a few events actually in, in Innsbruck. They built all of the Olympic housing and then afterwards that turned into a portable housing for uh, citizens. And, right. and it, it, it was designed with that intent in mind instead of, okay, let's just dismantle this whole thing and I would put that more on the times than any of them being terrible intentional polluters or something you know like, no I think I think you're right I think the Olympics is the closest thing to the world's fair that we have today I mean you they bring in you know the world-class architects from you know everywhere to contribute to the beautification of a city so you look at Zaha's um, uh, 
you know, her, um, uh, what is it, the, the ski jump um, yeah. uh, element in Innsbruck, you look at the birdcage in, uh, in, in, in um, uh, Beijing and, and other places. So, you know, each city becomes the recipient of, you know, these beautiful architectural artifacts that still, in most cases, remain. Um, I mean, even the Olympic pool in Munich is, you know, this incredible thing uh, where, you know, that's where Mark Spitz, you know, won his 12 gold medals. Uh, and when I, I was a student, I was able to, you know, when, when we all went to Munich, I said, okay, I'm, you know, I was a swimmer in college. And so I, I'm like, I'm definitely swimming in this pool. Uh, and so, you know, I got my swimsuit on and my cap and all that, that and I, you know, I swam that pool. Uh, at the moment in my life, and I remember that very distinctly. How cool. <laughs> Just putting in the waters of, of the big champions, and especially at the fair, which at the time and still the pow is just absolutely outstanding i mean it's it's one of the unobtainable or or thought to be one of the most difficult things you can do yeah and and you know that that particular pool you know they designed it with you know tensile fabric structures over it which was you know, truly unique at that moment. Nobody had ever done anything like that. Um, and so, yeah, well, I, I think the, the Olympics provide us with these wonderful architectural artifacts in the same way that the World's Fair did for us, um, you know, a century and a half ago. And I think that hopefully we are slowly learning that the solution is to build something up that will last beyond the events because how many of these structures or places are true ghost towns after it's over when that was a real chance to maybe try and design an ideal city or something at least aiming towards that. Instead, they build all of these uh, ridiculously huge structures, which can be cool and icons, but it's what's that use after? I mean, the Eiffel Tower itself, I mean, France has always been on the map, but the Eiffel Tower, it became that tourist spot of, okay, let's go there and see it, and it is just an outstandingly sculpted city as well, that it is a draw and and to have that opportunity to do that in forever and then miss that and then you only get revenue from the olympics which hopefully you you made money but it's billions and billions invested and then there's um and that corruption as well which is its own thing but it is quite that chance, and it'll be interesting going forward if we're ever going to have Olympics again or what 
title actually look like and if we can hopefully build some longer lasting structures because I feel that a lot of times when a client needs a building they're either just thinking about their business or flipping it or a, a lot more short term then that building will actually be there the contractor is only worried about having a built right you know so it has to fall on the architects to truly question and stand there as the pinnacle of design and longevity and reuse because it's not in the client's best interest. It's not in the contractors. It's in the cities and societies from an architect standpoint. And which is why I think it's so crucial to be a lot more like Olmstead and ProArc. But Burnham showed if you have one hell of a follow through, that'll get you pretty far. Because he was truly able to somehow bring this entire I mean like he hadn't ever done anything of that scale so like yeah. how could he even quite know what to expect or I mean oh it was absolutely fascinating to me to hear about how many workers on side they would have and especially towards the ends they were working 24 hours you know so and at some points over 20,000 porkers at once i mean i don't know the average um size of say a uh crew for a a high rise but it's not twenty thousand people <laughs> and well, it's, 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 it's a building versus a whole city you know whole development over 600 acres which still just blows me away i was able to uh find i i'm pretty sure they're the um authentic pictures because allowed one official photographer and then they charged for the codex which that was its own invention a personal camera um well, what I told the students is that there's a book called uh, that was printed by the Princeton Architectural Press called The Plan of Chicago, and it's all about uh, it's all about the White City. Um, and yeah. they can get their hands on it. Um, you know, I have a copy of it in my library, but uh, if they can get their, uh, their hands on a copy of it, they should yeah. they should cherish that. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Uh. I actually have it too. Um. Right here. Um, Padlin gave it to me a few Christmases ago. Oh, it is quite, quite the book. Oh. Uh, yeah, just like sitting here. Um, and it is really that attention to detail. And imagine being these authors and scholars and priests and researchers you, you are going through old people's letters and all of, like any sort of of correspondence they ever had that is hopefully available and that only gives you part of the 
picture. Thankfully, a lot of those have been saved, but I'm thinking so in future generations looking back on ours, assuming they still have access to the same uh, internet servers, they're going to have to trifle through so much spam and just like, I don't know how much of in of an individual type of priest of research would help pour of a metatype um uh but it's quite interesting especially in the temple and the white uh, uh white white city that all of these correspondence are actually in the book and you actually are reading the words from Burnham to his wife or to other characters and understanding his sense of urgency and flattery and on and on. Um, and I just was blown away by that level of Tito and that I truly felt I was in the book or, or in the story line versus it being some sort of reports on yeah it was an, an amazing post- book that encapsulated all of those issues and and you felt like you were building it along with burnham and you had you had that sense of urgency you had that sense of uh over you know you felt overwhelmed at times and um and, you know the thing that i appreciate about that book is is his ability to rise to a herculean task and accomplish it under you know, insurmountable odds against him. Um, and yet he still prevailed. And, mm-hmm. you know, that really led to the success that he had as a practice afterwards that, um, you know, even though it was a tragic loss of John Root being, you know, dying, you know, at the very beginning of uh, the, the designs for this, um, he was still able to prevail. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 a book that you know leaves your mouth agape. It it you know you're um, you're in awe and in wonder of uh, the effort that it really truly took to pull this thing off, and he did it. And so he deserves every accolade, every you know the honorary master's degrees that he had from Yale and Harvard. They probably should have given you know a doctorate. <laughs> In that yeah, just you know, he accomplished what nobody thought could could be accomplished in, in on a, a time frame that was almost impossible, but yet he still was able to prevail. And and so, what does that teach us about architectural practice? That it teaches us to you know be very vigilant about our our focus and our purpose. And um, and if we are uh, and if we do that, we can accomplish things that. Um, you know, other people think are impossible. Because throughout the entire story, it's not exactly as he's as if he's set up for failure, but a lot of people are expecting and they don't really want it at all because at up until this point, Chicago is still trying to put itself on the map. It, it was thriving commercially but compared to the 
bourgeois and, and the arts of New York, it was still um, quite secondary, and it was still viewed as as as, as rule instead of a dense and hyperactive city like Manhattan. Um, and they were really able to push through and achieve. And I mean, it's def this event definitely sets off generations of some high self-esteem of poor people from Chicago. Um, like, and um, it's also the emergence of a lot of different social issues as well from unions to to marketing in that really up until now the any time they had a strike the owners would just bring in other people and they would just get the job done as much as they could and this was really a turning point especially on the scale in in the realm of thousands of workers striking and then perceiving certain um, things as in a minimum wage or a um, 40-hour pork week and these sorts of societal changes really set up the entire 20th century of sorting out these relationships between employer-employee. Well, and the fact that they, they built it during, you know, a huge recession. I mean, there was rampant un unemployment at the time. And, and yes, it was benefited by the World's Fair in Chicago. But, at, you know, at the end of it, you know, all those people who were let go, you know, went back to, you know, essentially the black city. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, you know, labor unions, labor disputes, all of these issues, you know, came about. Uh, I mean, they came to the forefront during the the World Expo. And uh, again, I think Burnham definitely handled it um, in a way that very few people could. Uh, and, they, and they were able to still pull it off. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, you may not respect you know, Burnham's architecture because he still did neoclassic, you know, essentially neoclassical work for the rest of his life, even though he had somebody like Sullivan to help lead him to doing something, you know, more modern, more different, um, uh, thinking about architecture in a very different way. Um, you have to respect what he did, what he accomplished, and, and, and certainly in the time frame that he did it. No doubt. He was an outstanding force of nature, and it's so what, I, what I was yeah. telling my students is that you don't have to be the lead designer to be an outstanding architect. Um, and I think that part of what we teach our students in school is that the best designer is is the best architect, and that's not necessarily the case. And again, that's why we spent so much time talking about these four different categories within our in architectural practice that it really takes, you know, at least two individuals and sometimes four individuals 
to be able to craft out all four of those major roles within a practice to be for it to be successful. Um, and you can find your own way. If you're not the lead designer in your studio, that's fine. That doesn't mean you're going to be any less of an architect. And and Burnham was not the lead designer. I mean, he, he did not have the talent to do the stuff that John Root did, but he did have the talent to pull something off like this. And that brought him accolades that we almost remember Daniel Burnham in a stronger way than we do John Root. Oh, for sure. And I'm curious if that would be the same if he remains alive, because it was interesting as well to learn that in the firm of Burnham and Root, Root was the one who was thought of a lot higher than Burnham was. Because especially at that time, that structural prowess truly amazed people. I mean, any like almost anyone could schmooze or whatever, which isn't exactly true, but um, that's a different skill set than um, bringing something new to the world that they hadn't ever actually seen or experienced before in their collective memory. Right. And, and maybe like, like the emergence of Pernum almost required sh- 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 shedding of broods and th- that it also allowed him to ha- have a lot more responsibility as well. But it, the role he had in the fair was different than the role he had in the firm. I mean, it was similar, but in the fair, it was a lot more, I think, hands off on the explicit design. I mean, each building had like almost a, um, a like teams on it, you know, and it was all still late home. And it was way more of that facilitator. And that skill is still a very difficult one to achieve and get it right without any past experience. And it seems that in paralleling this to Brunelleschi, it seems from the 1400s to the 18, we see this um, diversification and and specialization more so than one person being in charge of every single aspect that's happening. And you kind of do that in project management, but before that wasn't quite possible with Prunelleschi to only be a project manager where with the increasing complexities. Well, that was true in the Enlightenment period. It was that, you know, we went to a more specialization in different aspects of the building arts. Um, we went to a more specialization in uh, in, in theater, in literature, in art, in architecture. Um, and, and that was a, certainly a, a byproduct of the Enlightenment period. Um, it was almost more Aristotelian um, in, in the sense that Aristotle, you know, Plato was, you know, the true philosopher and thinker, but Aristotle was the, um, you know, you, you can't dismiss his philosophy, but he was all about the classification and organization of elements, um, you know, 
it was a, the yin and the yang between Aristotle and Plato that you know, mm -hmm. propelled Western civilization that reemerged during the Enlightenment, where the um, you know the individual of the Brunelleschi didn't necessarily exist anymore. It, it, you know, architecture became a more of a team sport, um, and, and it is still consistent today. Even though you have you know individual you know geniuses that 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 come about and create new architecture and you know certainly we saw that with the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century um uh it, it's you know you have individuals that help propel architecture forward but the fact that the enlightenment period disseminated some of those roles into a, a broader group of people um still prevails today And also, it's quite interesting how it's c coming out of those dark ages and it's that true rebirth and trying to at first recapture the old, but then as technology progresses, they sort of blend the two and then... <laughs> modernism sort of just takes over until it it just ends <laughs> i it i also don't think modern um i also don't think that modernism got quite its fair shake but that is for sure a conversation for a um next time um yeah. but this project and this book is such a great read and it's truly something like the dome that it's it it something like this didn't thought happen before at the scale and it probably won't happen again you're right and, and that's something that's very much like Brunelleschi's dome it's it's uh it's something that, again, it's an era that you look at with a sense of awe because, you know, it happened once. It, it probably won't repeat itself. Uh, and it happened under circumstances like the Dome that were, you know, everything was, was fighting against its completion. Everything was fighting against its ability to really see it to fruition. And, yes, it did take the genius of somebody like Brunelleschi to execute it in a way um, from, you know, both uh, uh, a design and a, uh, uh, the ability to put something together. I mean, he, he's known more for his machines than he is actually for his design um, in the same way that Burnham is known for his ability to pull together, you know, all these disparate um, individuals and in uh, a task and in a way that is was truly unique for his time so yes i think there's a, a really strong corollary between burnham's ability to manage something that was this um this difficult and brutaleski's ability to also manage something a task that was thought to be impossible um you know certainly before they started to build it and the contrast in, like, like obviously Brunelleschi did not literally build the entire thing himself, so he had some help, but it was 
a lot more of the workman type help than the designer and engineer type help that Pornum absolutely demanded because like it would be unreasonable for him to design the whole thing and like it just there isn't enough time you know so so the uh, and it was it was really the first and one of the only times I can think of especially in the states that we've had an experiment like that and truly put that investment in there um, of that scale because everything else, like all of the other building that we do is on such a more minor scale and relative to its area, you know? Because, like, this was 660 acres. There aren't many developments that big, you know? That's, that's quite big. Um, and when they are, it's Sprawlburbia. And right. that is I just... I, it hits me more and more just how... I'm almost stuck on the word arbitrary, but I don't think that's quite right because obviously we have built stuff for a reason, but just how, um, not even random, but how subject to change everything is and how everything we, we do have was just kind of made up by people like you and me. I mean, yeah, there are these generational brilliant minds, but they aren't the ones building all of our cities. Right, it's right. people like us, you, you know, who are really out there in the field. And how can we truly take that impact? Because like, hey, oh, I'm doing a small library or what have you. How can that be the best thing possible? And well, the, the idea there is that you don't just think about your particular site, but you think about it in, you know, if you take, a, you know, one square mile in every direction from what you're building, what is the impact of what you're building? Um, and, you know, we can talk a lot about this later on, but um, it, it's the idea of building an infill building versus an object building. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly what Burnham did in, I would say you would, you would argue that in creating a city, he was building an infill type. He was creating an environment. And when you build an infill building, you're contributing to the city. When you build an object building, um, it is something that should be admired, admired from afar, but it doesn't necessarily contribute to the fabric of the city itself. Um, and as architects and urban, de urban designers, I think we should always strive to contribute to the urban fabric in some way in a positive way and and so i would encourage anybody who's designing any building to take you know you know take a site plan of a square mile in every direction and see what the impact of your individual building is going to have to that square mile and are you contributing to the to the fabric of, of the city that you're you're building and what you're building it's yeah, yeah, because uh, it wasn't until I was a couple of years into school that we really started to 
hone in on that context and just how crucial that is. Because if you're building a certain church or any certain program, is it adjacent to anything that conflicts with it or the exact same thing? Or what's the overall composition of that area? And as broad as it can be, like, are there pedestrians? Are there not? What's the traffic? On and on and on. And all of these sorts of uh, dynamics to the site really be kin to and I'm not advocating conceptualism by any means. I'm just what I'm advocating. So I don't think that we should build something to look like something else that's next to something else. Well, but I no. Think we should take into account your contribution to the environment at a much larger scale than just the site itself. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking more from a functional standpoint than aesthetic. Um, and. It was interesting to me when you were talking about Burnham building these infill buildings and, and and I saw them as objects, but in the way of describing them as you did, it's all it's way more about their relationship to each other because a lot of these buildings are freaking huge, you know, like their entire blocks, but they operate at such a scale that steps down to the human. And also it, it works in relation to others, you know, um, instead of it being something in a sea of a parking lot, you know, um, which that's way more of an object and, that ability to create the all of the plaza spaces and all of the outdoor pedestrian space that's created by the buildings and by the landscaping and that's truly what people inhabit and it's that push pull of space objects and how can an object really create space in a spatial panner versus in object panner and a formal panner, and it, it's it's achieved a lot of the times formally, which is quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, I am uh coming to the the end of my um, talking points uh, okay um, and I'm just tr- trying to propel this into the next discussion which is all about the transition from that n- more neoclassical uh, uh, ornamental into that very clean machine like modernism and how Frank Lloyd Wright really straddles both and those conflicts are quite um, outstanding and how he is able to just continue to be himself through the faces of um, scandal or um, you know, he reinvented himself in a way, and we'll, we'll talk a lot more about this in The Odd Couple, 
you know, mm-hmm. Philip Johnson reinvented himself, you know, throughout his entire career, but so did, so did Frank Lloyd Wright. But um, as Johnson's um, reputation perhaps recedes, Frank Lloyd Wright's reputation excels because he held to a series of principles his entire life, even though his early and middle and, and the end of his career could have easily been created by three different architects. Um, he still held fast to uh, his ultimately his ultimate goals and his ultimate principles. Um, and we can talk a lot, of, lot more about that in our next, uh, our next session. And it's, seems a heavy theme of these discussions is that self-awareness and that honesty to what you do enjoy and excel at. And obviously things are going to be quite difficult because life throws everything at you. And plus, developing a craft is difficult. Like you're kind of... <laughs> Up so many times and if you can at least be honest enough with yourself to not be so damn hard on ourselves that I think we can achieve a place of self propelling instead of needing others to comment or like or approve of whatever we are t- because all these other people are just as twisted and, and broken as you are. So why are, and most of us don't even like those other people. So like, why are, are we even asking for this admiration from people we wouldn't even probably talk to or, or it, it just blows my mind. But then I flip it back myself of like, Oh, I do that a lot. And, and trying to mitigate that, um, need for approval of others and it's for sure a balance because people are going to say positive and negative things all the time and it's how you roll with that instead of putting that be the cutting force on uh, some pretty important advice I heard because the praise has to be as quiet as the negativity. Because either way leads to madness. I mean, you can end up like Keating and just doing whatever it says to do in the papers and what anyone tells you or whatever. And then the papers all of a sudden don't pike you and you don't know what happens. And it's that whole problem of feedback. And it's, just escalates to a point that you're again not resonating at your own level in trying to pee almost in the perception of a perception of ourselves in trying to think what the other person thinks that we are which is just like (laughs) that's and a Thoughts theme um, that all of these characters and architects really deploy is that rigorous self awareness and self esteem and 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 I'm not sure where that comes from beyond 
experiencing a lot of different things. Like obviously upbringing and personality have like an influence, but I feel that that exposure to trial and that exposure to things that you also enjoy and can thrive upon. That's the, if that's not the meaning to life, I don't know what is because that, that just seems such in our nature. Yeah, I agree. But um, I always enjoy these talks. Um, I do too. Yeah. Thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, um. I'm hoping it's not too dark for you to be able to use this. No, no, um, it sh- sh- should be pretty good, and I I can f- fix s- s- some of it in post. But the point of it's the audio. I mean, like the videos more of an added-on thing, you know. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I love you. Um, thanks for thanks for the talk. It's been great. I'll see you there. Yeah. yeah. See ya. All right. Bye. Bye.